Number 754, please mark that, and we'll use that later in the service this evening. And prior to that, a lesson I've entitled, Why Parables? You perhaps have already given some appreciation to the text that was just read a moment ago, as that was read in our hearing. Mike pointed out the 13th chapter of Matthew, and let me encourage you to be turning to that location, and we'll be reflecting on a number of the verses found there over the next few moments this evening. This initial slide is not displayed. Thank you, Cale. This introductory slide is one that perhaps has crossed many of our minds, at least at one time or another. As you could perhaps note the following, Jesus Himself, we would all readily agree, was the greatest teacher the world has ever known. In other words, since He could read the hearts of men, He knew how to develop a point to present the truth in a way that would be most recepted by those to whom He was speaking. And yet we know that He was one who taught with authority. Matthew 7, 29 reminds us that it was so authoritative that it captured the attention of many of those who were hearing. In John 7, 46, there even those who were the officers of the Jews said, Never man spake like this man. Jesus had a marvelous way of speaking powerfully, speaking directly, speaking in a way that was very instructive. And yet to say that is to say this. He frequently utilized parables. He frequently spoke in such a way that he presented these incredible truths, but did so in the language you and I have come to call a parable. Tonight, as you close that slide with me, why did he do his teaching in parables? After all, wasn't it possible that there could be dangers or at least potential pitfalls in the usage of parables? Not only was that the case, as we'll see on this next slide, it was such that that could often be a bit problematic. And still it has remained so to some extent even in the world in which we live today. Let's use this slide to cast a spotlight on these parables to which we've referred. As the New Testament presents these ideas to us, might we start it like this. First, a definition. In many ways, it's more a description than anything else. When we refer to a parable, we literally have reference to this earthly story that has primarily a heavenly meaning. That is to say, it is a record of something easily understandable from the perspective of human life, and yet that which rests behind it and that upon which the parable rests has a much deeper, much more profound, and quite often eternal spiritual significance. That being said, look at some of these examples. Some of the most remarkable, some of the most memorable, and some of the most far-reaching sections of the Lord's teaching took place in parables. I selected but a handful to list, but I think the point is easily enough to be made. The Good Samaritan. It's probably the case that even the general person who has little interest in the church maybe attends rarely if ever. Probably even that person has at least heard about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not only that, as it is relayed to us in Luke chapter 10, the Lord used it to powerfully teach about the matter of who is one's neighbor. 
and the issues of insistence that comes before those that would strive to please God. But look at the next one, the laborers in the vineyard. Again, it's easy to picture. Here's an individual who goes out and hires people to work in his vineyard at various hours throughout the day. And then when the end of the day comes, those who started work early in the morning were just sure they'd receive more pay. But they didn't. And yet the Lord utilized that in Matthew chapter 20 to instill within them several things that said much about Jew versus Gentile. What about the next one, the prodigal son? Perhaps the most well-known of our three so far. In Luke 15, how that Jesus, in the midst of that instruction, spoke about not only this lost sheep and not only a lost coin, but the bulk of the chapter centered around a lost boy. I say lost because his dad had inheritance available, the son wanted it, and off he went. He squandered it in riotous living, and when he came to himself, he went back home. Dad received him so lovingly, received him with such openness, but the elder brother didn't. There's many senses in which that elder brother, in many ways, was the primary one to learn much out of that parable. And how often you and I today might find ourselves behaving like the elder brother. The next three, the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. And isn't it true that the Lord, as He taught about the fact that, not just at the destruction of Jerusalem, this is talking about the last coming, and there's going to be a day of judgment. And those five that were wise, they not only were ready for the moment, they were ready in case the Lord delayed His coming, the bridegroom in that case. You and I are admonished, even as Jesus taught that, to ever be ready, always prepared. The last two, the tares of the field. In Matthew 13, this is one of the few parables which not only do we have the explicit record of the parable itself, we have its interpretation. Those apostles came to Jesus and said, What's the meaning of this? And Jesus proceeded at once to describe in fullness the various particulars of that parable. The last one I chose to mention, the parable of the talents. How oft has that been an encouragement to us to ensure that we utilize those things that God has given us in such a fashion and way that would be befitting of the trust He has given us and the matter of His expectation of us. Again, the Lord taught. We have a record of well over 30 parables. That's a very brief listing, perhaps some of the better known ones. But the New Testament isn't the only place in the Bible where parables can be found. The Old Testament has a few of them as well. Can't we at least recollect that rather famous one in 2 Samuel 14? This one had at its heart the encouragement to David with respect to Absalom his son. You might recall Absalom had been banished. And Joab had a plan whereby David could be encouraged to bring the Absalom, his son Absalom, back home. And a story was told to David. Now, it was a story about a very different scenario, but in it, David could ultimately see that he needed to bring his boy home. What about that next one in Isaiah 5, in which God instilled in the prophet Isaiah a powerful message involving, in this case, a plot of land with a vineyard, 
And in it was going to be a message for God's wayward people, the people of Judah. Finally, in Ezekiel 17, 19, and later on in the book as well, we have parables that speak about an eagle, parables that speak about other kinds of animals. And God wished His people, Judah, who at that time were in captivity, to learn some amazing truths that they might repent of their errors and serve as they should. This slide, as it at least makes reference to parables, it still begs the following question. Why did Jesus and why did other sections of the Bible, by the infinite wisdom of God, choose to present the truth in a parable? This next slide will be one that begins to ask us several questions. But first, these observations. In light of that statement of description we made a moment ago, aren't these pitfalls possible? If this is an earthly story with a primarily spiritual meaning, what if, as the preacher makes reference to it and speaks of it, what if the audience doesn't get it? What if they only hear the physical part of the story? What if they never appreciate the spiritual truth that lies behind it? Would that not be a problem? You can see with me at least that is a possibility, but that is at all. Look at the next one. What if individuals, upon hearing the parable, what if they sense the earthly meaning? What if they have some sense that there is a spiritual truth behind it, but that they do not appreciate the spiritual truth in the way that's consistent with God's truth? What if they misinterpret it? What if they take from it what was never intended by God to be in it? You and I know today that it's possible to do that. Some of these parables, for instance, in the New Testament that Jesus spoke, you and I today could weave through that false teaching and read into it what Jesus never intended. In light of those pitfalls and the possibilities, why did Jesus teach in parables? What is it that is still making those matters worthwhile for not only His teaching but for our consideration today? Let's turn our slide and begin to look at some answers. Turn back with me to Matthew 13. The question that we're asking tonight is not the first time it's been asked. Looking back to that chapter, note with me fairly quickly that the first part of the chapter begins like this. Verse number 1, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto Him, so that He went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Can you picture the scenario, the scene? Here was Jesus desiring to continue His instruction, and the crowds were so large that needless to say, those in the back would not be able to see Jesus, and maybe even the message He was speaking would have a hard time making it through all the individuals. What the Lord did is step into a little boat, launch a small distance from shore, and there you can picture an amphitheater kind of arrangement. He's sitting in the boat, they on the shore, and He taught the truth of the Lord. But did you notice what verse is going to come next? Verse 3, "...and He spake many things unto them in parables." Here the Lord had a captive audience. Would it not have been better to just straightforwardly tell them what they needed to know and don't use any of these stories? 
The obvious answer is no. The Lord knew how to do everything the best way. He knew how to teach in the most memorable fashion. And He knew how to share the truth in ways that would carry the message and the intent. Therefore, He began to say this in verse number 3, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And over the verses that follow, He shared with them that parable you and I frequently call the parable of the sower of the seed. This one who sowed and some of the seeds fell on the wayside soil. Some of it fell on stony ground. Some of it fell among thorns. And some of it fell in good soil. You and I can well appreciate how easy it is to imagine that development. How often have those individuals seen people sow seed? How often have you and I seen it? We understand well some seeds might well fall on a concrete patch and not bring up much. The birds, in fact, are likely to get it. Others may fall in a section or plot in which it's far too rocky. Others in a part that's encumbered with cockleburs or thorns. Others, however, in well-prepared soil may not only fall and be properly positioned, but soon bring forth much. Again, an earthly story, the heavenly meaning, will later be presented in the chapter. But could I invite you to notice this? In verse number 9, after the Lord finished delivering the parable, the text says, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why? Speakest thou unto them in parables? Here the disciples were asking the very question we are asking tonight. They had the opportunity personally and directly to ask Jesus, Why are you talking to them in parables? And following that, in verse number 11, He answered their question. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith by hearing, Ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Now those were the words that Jesus gave in answer to this question. And so, the first thing you and I might notice, let's develop a few lessons, some of which are observations based on that passage that we just read together. To begin that description, might we notice this, in, drawn in part from John chapter 2, Verse number 4, why did the Lord teach in parables? Well, one of the things He noted is it was given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it's not. 
does that not indicate an element in wisdom as it touched the character of the way Jesus taught? Let's develop that point like this. You and I will appreciate that there was a definitive time for which our Savior would ultimately give His life. In other words, the spring of 30 A.D. was the time in which the crucifixion was to occur and the events in time should not have moved in a way to make that happen prior to that. Isn't it true on one occasion Jesus even told His own mother, Mine hour is not yet come. Jesus knew very well there was a sequence of events. And even Old Testament prophecy had pointed to the year 30 A.D., that was the year the crucifixion was going to happen. We could appreciate that in Daniel chapter 9. As it was revealed, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, you add together the years and it would bring us to the spring of 30 A.D. And so it is that you and I might notice there was great wisdom in this. Jesus taught in such a way that even those who were His enemies could not attack what He said. Not yet at least. That wasn't going to happen until the events of John chapter 12 and forward. That element in wisdom, may I say, actually points a great lesson to you and to me as well. Is it still true that we should employ wisdom as we give thought to the manner in which we speak to others about religious things? In Matthew 7 verse number 6, "...give not that which is holy to the dogs." There are things which, of course, by way of sacredness are holy. And we're admonished on an occasion such as that one, the words of the Savior Himself, to treat them with great value. We should never blaspheme them, speak inappropriately of them, speak in such a way that we lose sight of, in the hearing of others, the nature of what they stand for. In our world today, how often have you and I heard others speak in some way that's not terribly respectful of things like the church or the officers in it or the government of it or other matters touching those sacred things that Jesus Himself has put in place. If you and I talk like that in the hearing of those that aren't members of the church, how likely are they to have high estimation for the body we claim to love so dearly? It's easy to see we might, by our behavior, cause others to blaspheme the marvelous body for which Jesus died, Acts 20, 28. And therefore wisdom is called upon, give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Another passage that rings with power in this matter. In fact, it seems to me, uses another parable of the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, <clears throat> You remember with me that David, in the previous chapter, chapter 11, had chosen to behave in a very ungodly fashion. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He committed drunkenness. All in the span of one chapter. And as he did these things, of course, there's no record that he made any interest in or thought of God anywhere in the chapter. That's a very different thing than the way he had behaved only ten chapters earlier. In the beginnings of 2 Samuel 2, he inquired of the Lord. He was interested in knowing what God said and to behave in a way consistent with it, but not in chapter 11. He spied this woman bathing herself. Not only did he not set the thought aside, he called and had her brought to him. And we will remember that he committed adultery with her. 
in the aftermath of that, he murdered her husband. And in the course of an effort to conceal his own sin, he got Uriah drunken. All of these things indicated a sorely misdirected priority in life. You and I remember the way that chapter 12 began. Isn't it interesting that God didn't tell Nathan, you go and confront David and tell him what he has done. You've committed adultery. You've committed murder. Rather, the way that Nathan did it was this. He came to David and told him a parable. He told him a rather interesting record about a very rich family who had lots of livestock by way of sheep. But there was another family, rather poor, had only one little ewe lamb. A guest came to visit the rich man, and rather than killing one of his own herd, one of his own flock, he went and took the one little ewe lamb from the poor man and killed it and dressed it for his guest. David became furious. He said, that man's worthy to die. David's sense of justice ruled and reigned supreme, and he just knew that this kind of thing was such that it just ought not be. Nathan responded with four words, Thou art the man. The lesson hit home. David knew what he had done. He had behaved just like the rich man. He went and took the one prized possession of a man named Uriah. And he had him killed, all to cover up his own sin. And God knew it all along. He had failed to cover it up, of course. And in light of all of that, that record, of course, ultimately would emanate so powerfully that David sought repentance and he sought forgiveness. And Psalm 51 is an inspired record of his attempt, his approach to God to receive that forgiveness. May we say the message that Nathan brought and the way he brought it was exactly right. Look at the last things on that slide. Didn't Jesus even, of course, speak in terms of wisdom? How that the things He delivered, He delivered in exactly the way that was appropriate and right. But let's journey even more forward. For as we close that slide and turn to the next one, why don't we appreciate a few more of the things which we can see by way of lesson two. Isn't it true, and I think we each would have noted it from the outset, the whole reason why on occasion Jesus taught that way and on occasion why other sections of Scripture present truths and parables is because of their effectiveness. The mysteries of the kingdom, Jesus said in verse number 11, it is given to you to know them. It is given to you to appreciate them, but it is not to them. There was something about the effectiveness with which those parables would reveal it in the way that some could appreciate and utilize it correctly, whereas others would not. As you and I develop that point, God's revelation has been presented in such a beautiful fashion in exactly this way. I would point out that some apocalyptic sections of Scripture, in fact, are done exactly the same way. The book of Revelation is a key example of that. In Revelation, we have 22 chapters, and it is a marvelous presentation. In it, we read about some amazing things, be they beasts that rise out of the water or, in fact, out of the earth, 
be it bowls or vials that bring forth tremendous and great things, and to a person who does not have the intrigue and the interest to attach them to matters spiritual, they likely will mean nearly nothing. And thus, those Roman overlords who could persecute Christians so acutely, they would have missed the point. And much of the revelation was directed in description about the Roman Empire. Much of it was directed in light of what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. And they would have missed the intrigue of that message, but Christians got it. They knew very well about the matter of the marvel attached to it, and they could, of course, use it correctly. The effectiveness was rather remarkable. Look at lesson number three. Jesus said one more thing, did He not, in verse number 12. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. It may well be that you and I have reflected often about this interesting statement the Master made. In light of His answer concerning the nature and the purpose of parables, He specifically said, To those who have, to him shall be given more. In other words, they will not only appreciate the physical meaning, they will understand the spiritual one, they will live accordingly, and they will be eternally blessed as a result of it. They'll receive more. But he went on to say that those who do not have, they'll be taken away even what they've got. In other words, the physical story, what they appreciate about that, they will not understand or at least put to practice the earthly, or rather the spiritual meaning, and therefore they will lose the greatest thing of all. That's easy to see in that description at least, that two more points are almost obvious and ready to be made. So let's turn our slide and look at that next one. Because... Hidden beneath the description of the Master is a rather powerful statement about the requirement of dedication. You may have noticed it already. These earthly stories, those are the easy part to understand, but to appreciate the heavenly meaning, to rightly discern the Word of God, to make the right conclusion with respect to the other sections of the Bible, and to draw the right teaching and to make application of it, there's where the hard work comes. There's where the labor is to be found. Think again about that parable of the sower of the seed. It's easy enough to picture these various kinds of seed sowing events, but yet to conclude from that, I need to be like the good soil. I cannot be like the stony ground. I'll never make it to heaven that way. I can't be like the thorny ground. I'll never please God that way. And I sure can't be like the wayside soil. But yet, to be like that fertile ground requires that ground has to be prepared. Tilled, worked, always on guard with respect to the dangers and the enemy points. Am I willing to invest the effort, the ongoing preparation in time to ensure that I will be the good ground? One of the things that was noted about that ground that was thorny, you may remember that Jesus Himself told us in Luke 8 that the thorns represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. 
Thus, the Christian, the one who prepares the good soil in his heart, has to recognize that those things must not be the important matters in life, the all-important things at least, but rather it is the service to God. It could well be in light of that, this dedication could be seen in ways like this. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Some of the Lord's parables admittedly are easier to appreciate than others, and sometimes the heavenly record, the heavenly meaning is rather directly put before us. There are others that are certainly more challenging, and their correct interpretation, or at least the correct appreciation of it, will require a careful sense of the context in which it appears. It is with that in mind that could I invite you to note this. Verse 15, this people's heart is waxed gross. I would like to offer this as another thought that may be easy to appreciate. There are occasions in which individuals may well see the heavenly meaning, but it's just too tough. They are not willing to invest what's required to put that message into practice and to turn one's life in the direction that the parable demands. I suppose that's a danger for all of us. Sometimes the Lord's parables did have that effect, didn't they? This people's heart is waxed gross. That word gross has to do with they have purposely covered over their heart in such a way that it's unreceptive. Oh, they hear my words all right, but they don't allow the teaching to seep in. They lived in a society that was very agricultural, of course, and many of the Lord's parables were very familiar, at least in terms of the earthly meaning. As you and I come near the close of that slide, look at Lesson 5 with me. Let's develop this point about dull of hearing a little bit better. That is the phrase Jesus used in verse 15. This people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing. Jesus wasn't saying they couldn't hear. He wasn't saying that they were deaf or that they were even literally hard of hearing. As far as the auditory working of their ear, they were fine. But what he says is, their ears are dull of hearing. That language is this. You could see there at the beginning of that description. To be dull of hearing is to have one's mind such sufficiently clouded by other pursuits and other priorities that you're not interested in the matters touching that parable or other parts of the Word of God. Oh, and so you and I would never wish to be in that situation. To be such that, well, I see, God, what you're saying, but I really don't care. I really am not interested. I'm living in a way that's comfortable, that's pleasant, and I don't want to change. When you and I find ourselves in that predicament, we are very far removed our heart is gross. Our ears at that point have reached a point where we're dull of hearing. We know what the Bible says. We may well be easily confronted with it, but we just love this present world a bit too much. We love our circumstances too much, and we're intending to stay in them. The discussion of the parables takes us to the quotation that is mentioned in verse 
uh, verse number 13 and following. Did you notice with me that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament here? Verse number 14, And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. We might then be able to glean a bit of understanding about this if we'll revisit Isaiah chapter 6. It is in that passage that Jesus quoted specifically this statement without reading the entirety of that chapter. Let me pick up the scene in verse number 9. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. As you're turning there, perhaps a small bit of background. This is the chapter that records the call of Isaiah. As an individual who at that point, from that point forward, was called to be a prophet of God, you may recall that it was a rather monumental event. After hearing that commissioning, Verse number 8 said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? God says, I have work that I want you to do that needs to be done. And Isaiah quickly said, Here am I, send me. There's a song in our book that has that as its main thrust and title. And we often sing, Here am I, send me. That comes right out of Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 8. But in the aftermath, verse 9, it says, And he said, Go, so that's God speaking to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed and understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Now, upon first reading, that may sound strange. Why would God tell Isaiah, I don't want them to understand? I don't want them to hear? That's not at all what God was directly saying. He was saying, you preach the truth, and they, due to the hardness of their heart, they will choose to ignore you. They will, in many cases, have very little interest, Isaiah, in what you have to say. But you notice as the verse closes, the word that you will speak, it'll be what they could be converted by, and it's what would lead to their healing, but they're going to ignore you. They're not going to have an interest in you. But then notice verse 11, what Isaiah next asked. Then said, I, Lord, how long? If that's how they're going to react, if they're going to be rebellious, how long am I supposed to preach like this? Look at God's answer. And he answered until the cities be wasted, without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. This people is going to captivity. As long as they continue down this path, they're treading, and you've got the words that may save them, but you keep preaching it, even if they will not hear, and they end up headed to captivity. That is what happened. They ultimately were taken captive. And there they would spend 70 long years, seven decades in rebellion because they hadn't learned the powerful lesson that was spoken on an occasion like this one. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide that this basic idea was not unlike what also was told to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5.21. And similarly in Ezekiel 12 verse 2. Isn't that amazing? God let those people make their own decisions. Thanks be unto God, some of them heard the message of truth and they responded in faith. 
Many of them chose, though they heard the words of Jeremiah, the words of Isaiah, the words of Ezekiel and others, they nonetheless continued down a path of disobedience. God let them make their own choice. Let's go back to Matthew 13. And let's appreciate how blessed we are. Verse 16 says, But blessed are your ears, for they see. I'm sorry, your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. We are gathered on an occasion such as this one in an assembly in which we lift high the banner of God's truth. And you've chosen to invest your Sunday afternoon and evening when the vast majority of people in our community and in other places have chosen to be elsewhere. And you and I are those who among the many peoples on earth are the few who seemingly hear that which God has given and we wish to be responsive to it. And we not only wish to see what He has delivered, but we through the eye of faith are convinced it's right and we're convinced of our need to bend our stubborn will always to bring our life in compliance to what He has said. We walk by faith and not by sight. To borrow the wording of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, no wonder as you and I close that slide how blessed we are. Because did you notice in verse 17, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them. Some of the greatest worthies who ever lived. And by that I mean people like Noah and Abraham and Moses and even a whole host of others. They longed to see the things which you and I now enjoy in practice and in reality. They never had a perfect high priest like we do. They never had a perfect body like the church which we have. They never had the sacrifice of the only perfect one that ever lived, Jesus, but we do. They longed to see what we've got. They wished to have it, but they died before it became reality. It is with that in mind, Jesus then used parables to instill in them these timeless messages. Let's turn our slide and look at one final thing. The word of conclusion. We've studied tonight a bit about the question that they asked Jesus about why He spoke in parables. And in brief summary, we looked at these points. From the matter in wisdom, the clear usage and effectiveness the understanding attached to the incredible return to those who not only appreciate the earthly story, but put into practice the heavenly one. And finally, the matters touching the requirement of dedication. It is with that in mind that the blessing that comes to us should make in us a heart excited to be faithful to Jesus always. Because we have a home in heaven waiting. We have the assurance and the confidence and the reality of it. It's promised. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read that there's a blessing stated concerning those who are, of course, the faithful. But he said that there's a place that's undefiled, reserved in heaven, waiting for you. This place is not tarnished or marred. Tonight, are you and I living faithfully? Let's use the parables to motivate us in such a way that they set before us not only a well-memorable earthly story, but a tremendous spiritual truth behind it. 
tonight if we could be of assistance in any way. If you are a wayward child of God, or perhaps just in need of prayers of strength and confidence and assurance, we'd be delighted as brothers and sisters in Christ to do that very thing for you. But if there is public sin in your life, we would be delighted to rejoice over that lost sheep returning to the fold. Tonight, if we could help in that way as you make observation of that confession and repentance, Jesus has promised to forgive you. And if we could be of assistance in that regard and in that way, we invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.